Hello and welcome back to a bonus episode of Season 2 of Life's Lottery Backing Kids. I'm Jenny Whalen. And I'm Glenn Davis and let's acknowledge that we're recording this on Gadigal land. Today we're looking back over our second season to really pull out what we heard about putting kids at the centre of good public policy. We heard from diverse voices with deep and wide-ranging insights. And across six episodes, some really interesting common ideas began to emerge. I think the first of those was the real sense of frustration at the gap between what we know and what we see in policy terms. It's really pervasive, isn't it? Absolutely. There is actually no evidence that locking up 10-year-olds will stop crime. You know, when they come out and they say we're... We're building new detention centres, you know, we're locking up kids. That This will stop crime. It actually doesn't. So we heard that again and again from our guests, Glyn, about that knowledge action gap, about how important evidence is, but as just the, the first step or the first necessary but not sufficient condition of change. And I guess we also heard that evidence isn't enough. It doesn't change behaviour even knowing that a program won't work isn't enough to persuade government necessarily not to persevere with that approach. Or conversely, where the evidence of an existing program is telling us that it's not working is also not enough to change it. I think Anne Hollands is bang on about the lack of evidence for locking up small kids. That challenge of cutting into political and politicised debates with evidence is a big one. And we have examples such as out of home care programs where report after report says these are not effective and yet every day, every day across Australia, 30 children are taken from their families into out of home care programs despite everything we know about the likely outcomes. So if evidence isn't enough, there are times clearly we need that sort of political will and political leadership. And I think I've always found it frustrating, the resort to, if only we had political will or a political leader to get something through. It's not a can and can't narrative. It's actually a will and won't narrative. Will you or won't you do that is different to can you or can't you do that. What we thought was impossible is now possible. And I think the limitations to what we do next Yes, it will be partly political and policy because that's always been there, but it's probably as limited by our sense of imagination and what we could do than anything else. What Sharon was talking about, Sharon Goldfeld then, was the remarkable uh, turnaround on telehealth. She she calls it a 10-year agenda that they achieved in two weeks. Surely we don't have to wait for a global pandemic to get that level of dramatic change in some of these broken dysfunctional systems. But what do you do if the answer is just political will? So what you do is campaign, I suspect. And Jay Weatherall, in his discussion with us, outlined the Thrive by Five campaign for universal childcare. And his argument is that good early programs will make a huge difference, not just to the education outcomes of the children, but to the other problems that we've been talking about, or the other challenges we've been talking about. And He's willing to spend years trying to build a coalition together to make this change. So I think yes to a children's minister, yes to a policy framework, but it probably is going to need, you know, a much heavier buy-in from somebody that's able to actually, uh, you know, crack a whole lot of ministers' heads together. They get the health minister talking to the education minister talking to the child protection minister to make this system work. 
a kind of grand coalition. It marshals evidence, it marshals the political incentives, it marshals the efforts of families and parents and communities outside it, all behind that common purpose of thriving by five. And has at its head someone who understands the political process and what you have to do to get attention and brings all of that together. And I guess that long-term coalition building process is one of the privileges that we get from a philanthropic role in that change is to take the long-term view, is to be able to step back and not have to work to very short-term cycles, but to work across them, to very gently and gradually nudge open those windows of change. Absolutely. And in season one of Life's Lottery, we talked uh, with the Pew Foundation and they made that point about prison reform in the United States that they could go into this deeply unpopular area with a deeply unpopular proposal that made sense but didn't fit the political moment and spend 10 years arguing for it because they don't have shareholders and they don't have people who can shut them down and they've achieved remarkable change across the United States. Let's hope we see similar outcomes for early childhood education and support here in Australia. I think we do need a cabinet minister for children, but as well as that, I think we need to also have all of the ministers responsible for portfolios that affect the lives of children and their families to be working together. So I have been also calling for a child and family wellbeing task force. So a really clear theme that came through, Jenny, of our conversations, I felt, was this despair about coordination. And it isn't just within government, it's across levels of government and it's with the not-for-profit sector. The sense that there's all of these people of goodwill trying to do something, but it doesn't cohere into a program or into an organisation or into a local place that brings these together. And it strikes me that putting children at the centre of this discussion highlights one of the most damaging silos of public policy and public authority we have where the lives of kids as they interact with governments and policy and budgets are so clearly split into education and health and early childcare and family and perhaps criminal justice without those approaches cohering around the holistic life of a child. We heard it internationally as well, how difficult that coordination challenge is. I mean, one of the great paradoxes of our current system of, of childcare is that the children of the families that would most benefit from it don't use it. And that's because it's the world, the world of work defines the entry points into this system. So if you have a chaotic relationship with the world of work, you don't get into the childcare system. Yet that would be a protective environment in which children could be kept safe. A number of our guests, Jenny, reflected on the neuroscience of early childhood development and how profoundly important it is and how much we're just learning about what happens if the full opportunities aren't there in the first thousand days of life. You're actually experiencing this moment with a, with a small and beautiful daughter. Tell us about what it's like to watch your daughter engage with the world. Well, there's nothing like it, is there? As, as anyone who's ever spent time with a small baby will know, um, she's nine weeks as we record now. Uh, and at that stage of life where almost every hour you can see those neurons firing, you can see the brain development happening, you can see the reach from just one toy to the next one on the toy bar in front of her. And what an incredible time, what a privilege to be able to uh, to be there through it. But 
I must say, I also reflect regularly on just how tough it is when the circumstances don't let you do that, don't let you have the the privilege of spending uninterrupted time with a tiny baby. And I don't think that we'd support parents and mothers and babies well enough at that absolutely critical stage. Also fascinating was to hear Leela Smith's interviews with Indigenous organisations that are producing very place-based approaches, not at the macro task force level, but in place, in a single community, single group of people. Our people were forbidden to speak their language and there was policies put in place many years ago that prevented our people from practising our culture, our dances, and particularly passing on the language to the next generation. And the language held stories, it held stories on country, it gave us our identity. Charmaine counsellor and the Nyalang Mort singers. So it's such a profoundly sad quote, isn't it? Because it's somebody mourning what was lost and mourning what was lost in childhood and for children because that can't be recovered. And I'm reminded of um, Louise Gluck, the poet and Nobel laureate, who said, we look at the world once in childhood, the rest is memory. It's so profound and it does go to the value of childhood, a value that we're not very good at counting. We were reminded of that in our bonus episode after the budget this year of looking at children's budgeting and whether that's a way of getting to that value. But we're reminded about just that incredibly special part of life that actually government and policy and budgets are really clunky interlocutors in. The disconnect exactly between the mechanical instruments by which we allocate resources and what we actually value and what it means when it's taken away, as we just heard, is so profound and yet the gap is huge and hard to close. And you can think of some of those international examples of countries that are large enough and small enough, places like New Zealand, to have uh, a single reform effort around children and families. In Australia, you've got uh, a larger population but spread across different state jurisdictions and all the dysfunction that brings, as well as just the geographic differences. In Australia, the geographic patterns of poverty in Australia are distinctive, perhaps even unique. Absolutely. So you've got overlays here. We've got intergenerational poverty around particular families and communities, and we've got place-based issues and challenges, uh, and then we've got levels of government that are disparate and sometimes distant, and we're trying to make all of that work around a child. And it's not surprising that proves to be very difficult. Difficult, but the the challenge before us in the next decade or so, do you think? Absolutely difficult, but essential. And it's why some of the interesting programs like the Our Place program, seeking to put a local institution, the primary school, as the centre of a coordinated set of services are interestingly a very important experiment in whether we can create a coordination again at the local level rather than trying to achieve it nationally first. Looking to the future, paediatrician Sharon Goldfeld imagined how we could transform primary schools into hubs for children's wellbeing. 
in 2030, 2040, what could schools look like where we might move from schools in their current form to kind of these holistic platforms that that give as much sway to children's health and well-being as they do to children's learning? And, and what would that look like? And I'm not 100% sure what they would look like, but I think there's this extraordinary opportunity to explore that in a really meaningful way with different sectors sitting around the table. So Jenny, where does place fit in this equation? Well, Glenn, I think that's a big question for the country's policymakers over the next couple of years. I do think during the COVID pandemic, we've seen really big macro policy levers pulled in a way that, as so many of our guests have reminded us, we couldn't have imagined just a few years ago. As that subsides and we turn back to the priorities that are still there that demand more localised and tailored solutions, the question of place, um, the question of how to do place-based projects at scale, how to do place-based policy at scale without replication. I think that's going to be one of the dominant policy questions for our country in the next 10 years. And one we should return to because so many of the collective impact place-based projects are really about early childhood. They all focus on very young people and they all make the judgment, I think accurately, that early intervention and early support has the biggest potential payoff for the society and community and for the individuals, of course. Let's keep our eye on that one. So, Glenn, we heard a lot during the season about the need for more voices from children young people and their families. I mean, it's one thing to ask kids what they think or what they've experienced or what they hope would change. It's another thing to translate that into policy. Our people are one of the most consulted groups of people on the planet and have that fatigue. And I think there's that real tiredness, even amongst our young people, about the ongoing processes of inquiry without change. That was Children's Commissioner Anne Hollands and Yuwalarai and Mariwari lawyer Kirsten Gray. Interesting, isn't it? We just heard both the need for consultation and the fact that certainly consultation that doesn't produce results just leaves people tired and, and cynical. We heard a lot of discussion around different ways of hearing voice, measuring it, encouraging it, the youth forums, the online streams, the surveying of young people and so on. Uh, less about how the data that is generated could inform or should inform policy. And I wonder about it in the broader democratic context as well, because it strikes me that too often we're having conversations about voice without accountability. So voice is one channel by which those in power are called to account quite literally. When voice becomes, as we heard from Kirsten Gray, just consultation, mm-hmm. just those with power going out and asking questions of those who haven't been heard from before. It's such a thin dimension of voice. What does a a thick dimension of voice look like? What does a really vibrant democracy need to hear from children and young people and their families if policymakers are to be held to account, not just aided in their their job through co-design or consultation? So I don't think we heard a thoroughgoing proposal about how this can be done. But in in the work that Anne Hollands is doing, we've heard her speak in in the episode we recorded, 
you can see her mulling the same question and trying to find both ways of connecting agencies and not-for-profits that work in the area, but connecting them with young people and a dialogue that we haven't seen. The most important voices are First Nations voices and young people who will have to feel these effects of climate change in the future. And of course, climate change came up in every conversation this season. We spoke with Young Tasmanian of the Year, Caitlin Johnson, as well as Alicia Malorn from Equity Economics. Children in Australia are really worried about climate change. In fact, 59% of young people consider climate change to be a threat to their safety, and 71% name it as their biggest environmental concern. And Kevin Watkins from the London School of Economics. We need to listen to children. We're learning to do that partly because they're banging down the door on climate change, which let's face it, is the great injustice that our generation is passing on to future generations. For Australian children, the last few years have been unprecedented. The global pandemic has turned their school, home and social lives upside down. And on top of that, they've watched distressing weather events and bushfires, floods and everything in between. Uh, And for many children, because they're young, it's the first time they've seen this and what they're hearing is this is the rest of their lives. This is going to become the new normal. The impact of those changing weather patterns and the implications for children's lives were really an underlying consistent theme through this series. So we checked in with a local arts and community engagement organisation based in Mullumbimby, which is in northern New South Wales called The Spaghetti Circus, to hear from the kids about what it's been like. I'm Ellen and I'm 18. Probably my favourite things about circus is the community and the welcomingness and the feeling of home here. Challenging yourself and testing your boundaries and learning new things. There's just such a big community that kind of supports you through your childhood. I'm Maxine. I'm 15. Seeing water rise higher and higher and constantly moving things to like higher ground and then we have the cats running around and we're worried about them. My name is Malaika. I'm 16 years old looking off the balcony and it's no longer the balcony off the second floor, it's the balcony off the first floor because that's where the water's at. And then it stunk. 30, 40 centimetres is how high the water got and then all of the mats got flooded and in the back shed the whole sprung floor got flooded and the wood was all mouldy and muddy and gross so we had to rebuild that and gurney everything and clean everything and dry everything while it was still raining. And it was like a completely different place. It was like a shed that was filled like halfway with mud. I'm Lima. I'm 14 years old. Having to spend a lot of your time just helping other people, it's like really nice to do that and it's really exhausting as well. I was just here all the time, like... 24-7 basically and then I got COVID in the midst of it. This whole scenario is really exhausting to just live in. I think everyone's kind of got this as soon as it starts raining heavily it's like a bit emotional and like triggering almost. We've got a tin roof so 
It makes me go insane. I'm so sick of the sound of the rain and sick of getting infections from all the mud everywhere. It's really gross. You didn't realise the amount of rain could actually make it flood this much and it was like just so much water. <laughs> so it is scary. So it's difficult to prepare for it, but um, I think the stronger the community and the relationships between everything, the easier it is to handle really difficult situations and what the world is bringing for us, which is probably more challenges. I see climate change as the thing that'll probably either kill me or my kids in one way or another, be it not exactly from a natural disaster, but from something else, you know, like air pollution or it's overfishing, like, you know, food shortages because obviously the environment can't sustain what we're doing to it. I feel like climate change means kind of accepting that there's a problem and then doing something about it. I'm pretty angry about climate change and I don't see politicians doing much about it and I feel like by the time we're old enough to be politicians it's going to be kind of too late. Our aim is to create strong, healthy, confident kids and who are creative, which is what the world needs, people who know what they want and how they can achieve it and doing that through problem solving, figuring out all of the nitty gritty is like all of the stuff that needs to be done to actually create a sustainable future that's like benefits everyone and not just the individuals. It's been really fun coming back to circus even if it's not related to climate change, but in circus, figuring out a routine that's like helps fit everyone in with all of their different skills and matches the music, use of the space well. And it's like all of those things, like to create a perfect act is like figuring out all of the small things that create the awesome big things. What the community needs and like what my family needs is just like everyone to support where you can support like if you can support someone whose house got like taken out by the floods by giving them a place to stay you can do that but if you can't support with that just do whatever you can to support everyone around you and take care of the people around you Thanks to the kids of the Spaghetti Circus in Malambimbi for sharing their thoughts and their fears so clearly, so articulately. And we spoke to them after the clean-up, after they'd been flooded for a second time. So, Glenn, we asked all of our guests this season about what it would look like if we got it right and put kids at the centre of policy and policymaking in Australia. What about for you? What do you think it could look like? So it's interesting, isn't it, that in the election we've just been through, perhaps for the first time, childcare emerged as a major issue, debated not just by the major parties, but by many of the independent candidates as well. And I think that's a harbinger of where public sentiment is, the sense that so many women expect to be able to participate on the same basis as, as men, and that childcare is absolutely central to that. It's central to family finances, and it's also central for the children to be part of something community wider than the family as well as, of course, their family base. 
So I expect we might see really extended discussions about the future of childcare and continuing campaigns now that the election is over about how this comes to the fore in public policy. And let's face it, Glenn, you and I are policy junkies, as are many of our listeners out there. I think we've had to wait a couple of elections for the kind of appetite for real policy change that I think we're seeing now in the aftermath of this election, whether it's climate change, whether it's childcare or a host of the other agendas that do seem to have the ascendancy. There is an appetite for a different kind of strategic policymaking now. And a lot of it, as you say, does revolve around kids and families. One challenge, I think, that lies ahead is, of course, we're having those discussions uh, a decade or so into real hollowing out of the capability of the public service about which you've written so eloquently and and others too. I think it'll be uh, a big challenge for our Australian public service and those in the States as well to work out how to respond particularly to the appetite for putting kids and families at the centre of policy. Uh, And I think we can strap in for an interesting ride. Absolutely. It was fascinating to watch that the move on childcare was a campaign from below. It wasn't necessarily politically led. It was led by interests and people and individuals and organisations that have spent a long time trying to get this onto the agenda and have finally broken through. There's an old school of thinking in public policy called the issue attention cycle that reflects on how long it takes to get an issue up and the fact that when it gets finally the attention you're hoping for, you've got a very narrow window usually to get policy because attention becomes boredom very fast. So we're going to see a really interesting moment here where there's possibilities for change um, and that window doesn't stay open long. Well, and and let me do something that a good political scientist would never do, Glenn, and that's make a prediction. I think if if we're right and we can see kids and families at the centre of policy in, let's say, 10 years, it will be because we've found a way of overcoming some of those really damaging silos that we've heard from again and again from our guests that break kids up into their education needs, their health needs, their family needs, the employment needs of their parents and so on. That's the challenge ahead. And how can that not be an exciting moment? Thanks for joining us again for Life's Lottery, Backing Kids. And that was our last episode with my co-host and colleague, Professor Glyn Davis, who's been the CEO of the Paul Ramsey Foundation. Glyn's now taking on a new role as Secretary for the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet in the Albanese government. And I know all our Life's Lottery listeners will join me in wishing him the very best in his new role. And we have a new season in the works, so stay with us. As always, keep the conversation going at lifeslottery.com.au. Life's Lottery is produced in partnership with UTS Impact Studios. Executive producer Olivia Roseman. Audio producer Nicole Kirby. Researcher, writer, Jackie May. Auto engineer, James Milsom.